Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody from a sparklingly warm San Francisco on a Saturday morning, February the 12th, 2022. Spring has arrived in San Francisco early. Perhaps the foreboding from an environmental point of view isn't very encouraging, but it's lovely to be here. Yesterday, I took a walk, uh, as I often do, um, on the marina, and I went to my favorite bar in San Francisco, The Interval, um, which is a remarkable bar in Fort Mason, for those of you who know, run by the Long Now Foundation, uh, a foundation very much focused on investing in long-term thinking. One of the co-founders is perhaps the Bay Area's most original thinker, a man called Stuart Brand. I've had my run-ins with Stuart, but he's a brilliantly original thinker and an enormously influential one. Uh, there's a new book coming out about him uh, called Whole Earth by the New York Times Tech. Uh, writer John Markov. We're going to do that uh, in March. I'm excited about that book. Brand has always uh, underlined, reminded us of the importance of long-term thinking, of our responsibility perhaps as ancestors for the future. We've done quite a few shows on that this week. I had the British writer Antonio, the historical writer Antonio Fraser on the show. Uh, she's just written a book about the uh, the I guess you'd call her the, the, the feminist activist, Caroline Norton, who secured rights for women in the 19th century. We also did a wonderful show with Linda Hirschman about um, the abolition movement, the movement that fought slavery in America, including remarkable figures like Frederick Douglass. But on the other hand, it seems, and we've done a number of shows about this, that Short-term thinking is wrecking the world. Everything is broken because of an outbreak of short-term thinking. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with Christopher Leonard about quantitative easing, about how the policies of the Federal Reserve is essentially bankrupting uh, the American government for the benefit of the rich. We've done many shows on AI and its threat to humanity. We did one recently with Jacob Ward. Um, also, the broken nature of big pharma and the healthcare system. Uh, we are not responsible ancestors in terms of passing on uh, the broken medical system, particularly in America. And politics, of course, forms very centrally in this. The American political system, democracy seems to be broken. We're handing down a broken system. And we've had many shows, including one with Michael Waldman on the fight to vote. This is all about safeguarding future generations. The environment, of course, is also enormously important. We've done many shows about that. Uh, uh, there was a wonderful piece in The Guardian a year ago uh, by my guest today, Roman Krasnarich, um, uh, entitled To Safeguard Future Generations, We Must Learn How to Be Better ancestors. Uh, he's focusing in this article on the environment, but he has a broader argument, which he articulates in a really important uh, book. It's come out in paperback in the United States this month. It's called The Good Answer, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking. And I'm thrilled that uh, Roman is joining us from Oxford today. Roman, I hope the weather in Oxford is as cheerful as it is in San Francisco, is it? How is the weather there? 
It's the opposite. It's dark. It's rainy. It's cold. But it doesn't matter what the weather is if we're talking about future generations and being a good ancestor. The heart of your argument, I think, um, um, both metaphorically and literally, is the environment, uh, Roman. We, and, and, and I'm not entirely sure of this, it's not really my subject, but it seems as if we're, for our ancestors, we're handing down a broken planet. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I guess the question really is, how to find ways to think about it and talk about it um, in ways that really connect with people. And for me, I like the idea um, or the metaphor of colonization. I believe that we've colonized the future. And in wealthy countries, especially, we treat it like a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological degradation, but also technological risks as if there was nobody there. It's a little bit like the way when Britain colonized Australia in the 18th and 19th century, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius, nobody's land. The idea was that there were no people uh, on the continent of Australia. Of course, there was the indigenous population. And I think alongside that terra nullius idea, we've now got tempus nullius. We treat the future as sort of nobody's time, that there, there are no future generations there. But of course, there are billions upon billions of people yet to be born. And the tragedy is that they are not here to do anything about the pillaging of their inheritance. The um, pillaging is an interesting idea. I know that there's the notion of environmental personhood, which transforms the law and the environment to an intergenerational issue. I'm sure we'll, we'll come to that later. But I'm, I know you use this idea of colonizing the future at the beginning of the book, Roman. It's not just a metaphorical idea, is it? It's a, it's a, it's a form of thinking reflected in uh, Northwest European colonialism. And, and I don't think there's any coincidence then that one of the fashions these days seem to be for indigenous ways of thinking, of pre-colonial thinking. Uh, one of the big hits, for example, in book terms of... Um, late last year was David Graeber and David Wengrow's book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. We didn't have, unfortunately, uh, Graeber on the show because he's no longer around, but we did do a show on the book and it seems to suggest that there is a new way of thinking of pre-colonial society. I know you have quite a lot of interest in this. Is this fair? Yeah, I absolutely think that's right. I mean, it's something I'm personally interested in because 20, 25 years ago, I used to be a political scientist and I did a lot of my research at the time with working with indigenous Mayan people in Guatemala, which kind of opened me to that idea of the indigenous worldview. And when I started researching long-term thinking, um, I kept coming across indigenous ideas. For example, the idea of seventh generation decision-making, you know, making decisions based on looking seven generations ahead, sometimes seven generations back as well, which can be found in lots of Native American communities, Haudenosaunee, Lakota people. It can be found in the Moluccas Islands and in many other indigenous cultures. And really at its heart, that idea is a kind of philosophy of ecological stewardship. It's about the idea that we are just temporary stewards of the earth. We should be passing it down um, to our children and their children in at least a good state as we received it. But I think the really 
challenging question is, okay, it's fine to talk about these indigenous cosmologies like seventh generation thinking, but how do we make that work in the fast moving cities of Miami or Dubai or Shanghai? And I'm actually really inspired by organizations and movements which try and pick up these ideas and run with them in a respectful way. Like in Japan, for example, there is this amazing organization called Future Design, and it's a grassroots political uh, movement. And what they do is they invite local people to discuss and draw up plans for the towns and cities where they live. And they're directly inspired by the Native American idea of seventh generation decision making. They invite people and divide them into two groups. Half of them are told their residents in the present day, and the other half are given these kind of ceremonial kimono-like robes to wear and told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out that the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative plans for their towns and cities, whether it's long-term investment in healthcare and education, action on climate, action on an aging population, or the threats of automation. And this movement is now spreading to big cities like Kyoto, being used in Japan's Ministry of Finance, companies like Fujitsu. So there we are seeing an example of kind of indigenous ideas, but kind of tweaked for a different culture. And I think that's a lot of the work that we have to do when we encounter these indigenous uh, worldviews. Is this a, a kind of an, an ancestral version, um, uh, Roman, of citizen assemblies? These are quite fashionable. I do another show called How to Fix Democracy. We've done a number of shows about uh, citizen assemblies, this sort of reinvention of the so-called democracy of antiquity in Greece, where through uh, through lotteries, a small group of citizens are invited. In fact, we even uh, to, to, to participate in confronting really complicated issues like abortion in Ireland. We even made a movie about this. Helen Landemore, Yale, a French, uh, French political philosopher who teaches at Yale is... Um, is a big supporter of this. Um, I, I know you're quite a fan also of, of citizen assemblies. Is this the innovation that can allow us to return to a more responsible way of managing the earth? I'm certainly a great fan of citizens' assemblies. And I know Ellen uh, Landemore, who in fact has recently just started to work in, um, pick up a research fellowship in Oxford, where I live, um, for the next six months. and. Certainly, I think there is compelling evidence, as you no doubt know, that one of the citizens' assemblies, in a way, do two things. One is that they revive faith in the democratic ideal through that ancient Greek style of participation, which particularly matters at a time when, over the last 30 years, there's been a systematic decline of faith in traditional parties and politics and democracy, hence the rise of the far right. But the second thing citizens' assemblies do is they're very good at taking the long view that when you have that random selection, that sortition method of bringing citizens together to discuss an issue, whether it is abortion or climate or whatever it happens to be, they tend not to get caught in those short-term cycles that our regular politicians do. And I was recently an expert witness at a citizens' assembly in the north of England, um, which was discussing climate change. It was brought together by local government. And it was fantastic because it was probably, it was actually online. It was one of the most diverse groups of people I had ever spoken to. And we did this little imaginative exercise that I, I took them through, which I, in my sense, I think is important to do, which is to try and get people to specifically think about their impact on the future. So I got them to close their eyes um, 
and to imagine a young person in their life who they really cared about. And then I got them to imagine still with their eyes shut that person, young person, 30 years in the future and then on their 90th birthday. And I got them to imagine, you know, imagine what this 90 year old would say about you, their departed ancestor on their 90th birthday, about something that you did in the world to be a better ancestor. And it sparked a really deep and profound conversation about the kinds of world we want to leave. And I think one critique I would have of citizens' assemblies is they don't do enough of this explicit tr trying to imagine the future. And that's what I try and bring into them uh, whenever I, I can. But you, certainly... want, you, you want us to re rethink the idea of time, it seems, Roman. In the beginning of the book, you have this really great chart about the tug of war for time, six drivers of short-termism, versus six ways to think long. I began this conversation with reference to long now. Uh, the Long Now Foundation have a clock, uh, symbolically, which is very much focused on the long-term future rather than the next few minutes. How, in your view, can ordinary people rethink time, given that we're all on Facebook, given that we're watching at this minute this show, given that we have to pay our taxes, given that we have to focus on making sure that our kids have food and clothing and education? Well, I think the first thing to realize is that human beings are not simply creatures that only look at their phones and are searching for the dopamine hit. I mean, that's part of who we are. I call that the marshmallow brain. It's the part of our brain which focuses on short-term rewards and instant gratification. It's been wired into us for 80 million years. But there's another part of our brain, which I call the acorn brain. Yeah, and you have this great tweet, uh, I'm quoting you here, should we use our short-term marshmallow brains or long-term acorn brains? Uh, in other words, do we want to be squirrels? I don't know what eat marshmallows, but certainly you want us to be squirrels in terms of our acorn brains, right? Absolutely. And, you know, this acorn brain lives in our frontal lobes at the front of our heads, particularly a part called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, if you're into that stuff, <coughs> excuse me. And the thing about human beings is actually, we're really good at thinking long-term compared to a lot of other creatures. So a chimpanzee might get a stick, strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke into a termite hole. Um, and that's a little bit of planning ahead, but they'll never make a dozen tools and set them aside for next week. But that's exactly what human beings do. We are long-term thinkers extraordinaire. That's our acorn brain in action when we're planning for our pensions or writing song lists for our own funerals. That's how we built the great- Have, you, have you done a song list for your funeral, Roman? I know you had, you've recently had COVID. I haven't done a song list for my own funeral yet, but I've certainly got a few songs up my sleeve. Uh, on the any, uh, any ones you can reveal today? What would you like well, to be what I would I tell you what I want played at my funeral. It's an album by the great musician Brian Eno called January 7003. And yeah. it is music. And Brian Eno is, is perhaps the most influential, certainly the most influential musician in the Long Now movement. I know he's also one of the co-founders with Stuart Brand of the movement. So uh, he's important. Absolutely. And so this music he's written on this CD is um, music written for 5,000 years in the future. It's going to be played inside that clock uh, the 10,000 year clock that you mentioned before, which is being built as we speak inside a limestone mountain in the, in the Texas desert. They're going to be a combination of 10 bells, a different combination every day for 10,000 years. Brian Eno's written that music. So I'd certainly like that played at my funeral. It's a kind of a, uh, an anthem for a long now civilization. Yeah, uh, Eno worked with David Bowie, who unfortunately is no longer around. Uh, Bowie famously wrote uh, 
wonderful song about time. He wrote time. I think it's, and I hope I'm not misquoting him, falls wanking to the floor. Um, doesn't wait for anyone to borrow some language from the New York, uh, from, from uh, the Rolling Stones. Um, it's a tricky one, Roman, isn't it? I mean, it's all very well you as a self-styled public philosopher coming on a show like this and talking about this, but most of us can't afford this long-term thinking. It's it's very well, far. I would to say do. the I'd say the opposite. I say we can we can't afford not to do it. You know, if you care about your children or young people in your life and their futures, I mean, my daughter, right? She's thirteen. She could easily be alive in the year twenty-one hundred, and. You know, her future is not science fiction. It's an intimate family fact. Of course, I agree that it isn't easy to grasp the the long term. I mean, on my 50th birthday, not that long ago, I took my kids for a picnic inside. We climbed up a 900-year-old yew tree uh, where you could climb in the branches. And we talked a little bit about deep time. But of course, my kids, like all kids, are looking at their phones, as I am too. And they're real demands on the present, on the present tense, as it were. Look, if my if my daughter breaks her leg, I don't want to just think long term. I'm going to take her to the hospital right now. And if there's a pandemic, I want my government to act right now and, and act on it. But equally, I want my government to be thinking for the long term as well, thinking about what's going to happen um, you know, to sea level rises, what's going to happen to temperatures, what's going to happen to water availability. And so these are real things that touch us. And one of the really interesting things about that Japanese movement I mentioned, future design, is that when people are asked whether they want to pay higher taxes for the future, normally people say, no, I don't want to pay higher taxes, you know. Um, but that's when Japan, they've got... Roman. If you did that in America, no one would ever vote for higher taxes. But actually, once people put on the gowns and start having conversations <laughs> about the long term, people do actually change their, yeah. what economists call their discount rates. They will actually invest in the future because, you know, human beings aren't just here and now dopamine driven creatures. I mean, most of us maybe know our parents or grandparents. If we have children, we might know our grandchildren. That puts us immediately in five generations. If you think of the year your grandmother was born and the year a grandchild might die, well, that's a span of nearly 300 years possibly. Yeah, dress, uh, this idea of dressing in an ancestral form is an interesting one. I know Machiavelli, perhaps the greatest of all, you said you were a political scientist, the greatest of all political philosophers, certainly um, of modernity, um, would always dress in the robes of Roman antiquity uh, right. when he sat down to write because he felt, I think quite seriously, that it it connected him with the past. So maybe maybe there needs to be a new fashion for, dre for dressing in the, the robes of antiquity. We are talking with <laughs> Roman uh, Krasnarich, who has very bravely got himself up from his deathbed. He He had COVID. He still is has a little bit of lingering COVID. I'm thrilled that he's on the show. He is the good ancestor. He seems a very responsible man, the most certainly more responsible than me. I've never got my kids climbing old oak trees. Um, and uh, he is also the author of The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World. Roman, we're going to take a 60-second break, and then I want to come back and talk about some of the mechanics of, of being a good ancestor. And particularly, I want to address the the gorilla in the room, which is really the future of capitalism, whether it's compatible with long-term thinking. So we're going to be back with Roman Krasnarich, uh, the author of a wonderful new book, The Good Ancestor. Hold tight, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many 
different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Roman Krasnarich, the author of The Good Ancestor, really important book about rethinking time in our short-term age. Uh, Roman, before the break, I suggested I wanted to address the gorilla in the room, which I think is 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 capitalism. Not, I think, I'm pretty sure. Um, we've had so many shows about the future of capitalism. For example, I had Tim Jackson, another British academic on the show, has a really interesting new book out, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Is long-term thinking compatible with capitalism? Can the two coexist? Ultimately, I think no. Um, certainly, you can find people who believe in capitalism in its various forms who take the long view. I mean, a former head of Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. But of course, that's a very narrow way of thinking about the long term. It's not thinking about the seven trillion people who might be born over the next tens of thousands of years. I think the fundamental problem, and in fact, this is one that was brought up very well by Tim Jackson in in that book on post-growth and in many of his academic papers, which is there is no systematic evidence that we can, what's called decouple GDP growth from CO2 emissions and material uh, use um, at anything like the pace and scale required to stay below safe degrees of global heating, say 1.5 degrees. Um, you know, you can go back to the great ecological economists of the 1970s, like Herman Daly, who wrote about this. He said, basically, you've got to think about the economy as a subsystem of the biosphere. You know, when you learn economics, as I studied economics 25, 30 years ago, we're shown demand and supply diagrams on a pristine white background. There's no biosphere. But as Daly pointed out, look, ultimately, if you're interested in the long term, you can't be using resources as fast as they can be naturally replenished, and you can't create waste as fast as they can be naturally absorbed by oceans and other carbon sinks. We need to live within the boundaries of the one planet we know that sustains life. And as we know, the kind of neoliberal capitalism, which has been dominant since the 1970s and 80s, 
doesn't have that. Okay, I, I take that point. Well. And uh, uh, my question was not about le- neoliberal capitalism. My point really is: is there a capitalism post post neoliberal? I'm not sure if I'm creating any marital discord here, Roman. But your wife is a very distinguished economist, Kate Raworth, the author of Donut Economics, a very important figure, perhaps even the founder of a the regenerative economics movement. Would Kate agree with you that? There is no long-term thinking in a capitalist system, or is her donut economics, which incorporates a degree of capitalism, compatible with this long-term thinking? I think if you had her on the show, she would be talking, not using the word capitalism. In fact, she avoids it. She doesn't find it very helpful. She'd be probably talking about a sort of post-growth economy where... We'll have to get her on. So, yeah, so you're obviously not speaking on her behalf, but I'm still curious. Yeah, but so I, I, I think that... Um, capitalism is not compatible with a long-term view of society that's living within the boundaries of of the ecological limits of the planet. And I think she would agree with that as well. It doesn't mean that there's no space for businesses to grow and die. What it means is that governments cannot stay committed to the 20th century goal of constant GDP growth. Now, that's been a but goal a pursued by issue. left, right, and have, Yeah, but you can still have capitalism. You can still have private enterprise. You can of course, have- you're going to still have private. I, mean, I had a very interesting conversation. In fact, almost a, a not a, not quite a tiff with Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly about this from the Long Now Foundation right. because I was showing them the the donut diagram of staying within the boundaries of the planet. And Kevin Kelly was saying, "Look, I don't like that idea of boundaries um, because boundaries stifle innovation and entrepreneurship and so on." And what I was saying was, "Well, look, boundaries are what create innovation." You know. Um, Mozart played on a five octave piano, Jimi Hendrix on a six string guitar, Serena Williams within the boundaries of the tram lines. It's okay to think that we have to stay within the boundaries of CO2 emissions, biodiversity, what are sometimes called planetary boundaries. And of course, businesses can be growing and dying within that, but we cannot push over those boundaries. And there's nothing in capitalism itself, when no matter how you define it in terms of property rights or free markets or however you want to define it, which has the biosphere integrated into it. So I think we need post-growth, post-capitalist economic models. I'd say donor economics is one of those models. There are other models, the well-being economy uh, and so on. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Kevin Kelly, another important figure in the long now movement. Kevin and I have had our disagreements in the past, but I have a great deal of respect for him. He's a really smart, interesting guy. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. I mean, he always I, says I'm... the kind of thing that nobody else dares to say. It might actually be interesting to have you and him on the same show. What about this issue, um, uh, Roman, of biomimicry? I know you're a, you're a big fan of the work of... Uh, Janine Benyus, the author of Biomimicry. As an alternative to capitalism, do we need an innovation inspired by nature? How would nature, if it could think and talk, how would it it respond to the ideas of capitalism? What would nature say if it heard the theories of of Milton Friedman, for example? I think nature would let let out a great howling monkey scream. Um, I think... (laughs) I mean, Janine Benyaz asks a very interesting question. She says, how have other creatures managed to survive and thrive for 10,000 generations or more, whether they're bats or beavers or birds? And she says this, she says, it's by taking care of the place that will take care of their offspring. In other words, by not fouling the nest. And of course, 
as she would, I'm sure, agree with this, that this is exactly what human beings have been doing since the Industrial Revolution at a never-increasing uh, pace and scale. That's what the Great Acceleration is all about, all those upward-swinging uh, graphs of CO2 emissions and ocean acidification and deforestation. And, of course, the, the whole thinking of biomimicry is to put nature first. Then you can do what you like with your economies and politics, but it's about what your overall, what the ancient Greeks called the telos, your overall goal is. And I absolutely believe that if we are going to survive long-term as a species, we have to learn from nature's 3.8 billion years of R&D, as Janine Benyaz says, and not foul the nest. You I wonder if uh, you, you mentioned telos. I wonder if we could conceivably return to the Greeks for our wisdom here, particularly to Aristotle and his ideal of the public space. One of the heroes of your book is a man called Jonas Salk. I didn't, I'd never actually heard of him before, but he was an American virologist who, um, who, who, uh, who, who found a, um, who found a, 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 a vaccine for polio and dedicated it to mankind. It's manifested now in the Salk Foundation. He kind of also reminds me in a way of Tim Berners-Lee, another friend of uh, Brand and Kelly who donated the World Wide Web to humanity. Do we need to reinvent or rethink public space along Salkian lines or Berners-Lee style lines if we're to recover the wisdom of our ancestors, Roman? I absolutely believe that profoundly and, and seriously. I mean, Jonas Salk, as well as, you know, finding the vaccine for polio in 1955, in the 1970s, he raised this question. He said, the great question facing civilization is this, are we being good ancestors? In other words, how are we going to be remembered by those generations to come? In fact, it's that question which very much inspired my book. Um, and I think we need to, in a way, introduce the long term more into the public space or what I sometimes call the ethnosphere, that swirl of beliefs and attitudes which make up public culture, which shape how we think. How do we do that? Well, we partly do it through throwing new economic ideas uh, into that public space, whether it's donor economics or Tim Jackson's work on post-growth or degrowth, those kind of things. We need new kinds of politics. So we need ideas of citizens assemblies or, for example, in Wales, you have thinking of the ancient Greeks, something a bit like Plato's Guardians. You have a political position called the Future Generations Commissioner, a non-party political That's position. That's a bit chilling, though. Um, and, 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 and I know you address this, but listening to this, there is an, an element of technocratic wisdom here of, of Plato's guardians. Um, are you perhaps supporting the Chinese Singapore technocratic model? We've had a lot of discussions on this as sort of emerging a short termism of chaotic American democracy and then the longer term Chinese Singapore model articulated by people like Kishore Mabubani, who's come on my show several times. Are you ultimately perhaps um endangering democracy here in this no i i take the exact opposite view i mean i'm a kind of by heart um uh, or by nature a geeky political scientist that's what i used to be back in the 1990s when i used to teach in universities and when i started thinking about long-termism and interviewing and talking to people about it a lot of people said to me i said look uh, isn't the real solution here that we need to be more like china more like singapore you know with their long-term investment in healthcare and education and climate change and so on um, and so I thought, well, that's an interesting question. Do we actually need benign dictators, enlightened despots? So I looked at the data. The platonic model in 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 his uh, in his Republic, which Socrates Absolutely. was very the, the philosopher king. Of. 
the philosopher king. So I looked at the data about the philosopher kings. Do they actually perform better, these authoritarian governments, when it comes to long-term action on uh, environment, healthcare, social and economic policy? Well, I found the opposite. In fact, I worked with a statistician called uh, Jamie McQuilkin and an index he developed called the Intergenerational Solidarity Index, which showed out of looking at 122 countries around the world, of the 25 countries which had the best long-term public policy, 21 of them were democracies. And of the 25 lowest scoring countries on the index, which had the, the least effective long-term policy, 21 of those 25 were author authoritarian governments, military dictatorships, uh, monarchies. So where did Singapore appear on this list, for example? Singapore's a little bit of an outlier, actually. It, it, it's rated on, the, on this democracy scale called the Varieties of Democracy Scale, developed at the University of Gothenburg, as a kind of a a sort of slightly authoritarian, uh, not highly authoritarian, but slightly authoritarian uh, government because, of course, of its restrictions on freedom of speech and so on. And they perform very well on not all long-term public policy measures. They do well in education and healthcare, less well in terms of environment, but though that's changing. But, you know, we can't dream that we're all going to become Singapore's um, because the, the evidence just isn't there. It's an incredibly risky thing to think that a benign dictator is going to come along and save us. So going back to Wales and the Future Generations Commissioner there, I'm like you, a little bit skeptical. In fact, I'm part of a campaign for the whole UK to have a Future Generations, not com commissioner, but a commission of um, eight people informed by a citizens assembly um, behind it. And that bill for a Future Generations Commission is in Parliament in the UK as we speak. Maybe we so, need a Ministry of the Future. I think a ministry, of the, a ministry of the Future would be good if it was accountable, if it had the voices of young people and people... Yeah, there's of a famous book, of and, course, by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, imagining in science fictional terms the Ministry for the Future, which I know you're an admirer of this book. Absolutely, well, I am. I'm holding it in my hand here. The oh, Ministry good. Well, that was... Uh, it's good that we, we're thinking alike. Uh, Finally, um, finally, Roman, the thing that the more, when I read your book and have this conversation, one possible criticism is that perhaps there is a, an element of millenarianism, of, of apocalyptic thinking to your work and to this movement. You refer to the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, co-founded by Martin Rees and Jan Tallinn. I actually featured Rees and Tallinn in my last book, How to Fix the Future. So I'm familiar with them and I have a great deal of respect for them. But you hear this from the environmental movement all the time, that we're on the verge of the end of the world. Is that really the case? I mean, for example, we had Parag Khanna, the Singapore-based geostrategic thinker on the show. He just has a new book out called Move. He's not a supporter of global warming, but on the other hand, he recognizes that global warming will result in us just moving and that some parts of the world will become more valuable, some parts less. My, is one criticism of, of your thinking and your work and perhaps your movement, that you're exaggerating today's risk, today's existential risk, and every generation thinks they're living on, at the end of time and they never seem to. What, what about that criticism? It's a good one to think about. Uh, I think that we need to think seriously about the rise and fall of civilizations, as Jared Diamond and many others have since and recognized that no civilization lasts forever. Civilizations are born, they flower and they die from the Roman Empire to Byzantium and everywhere. And we need to think about our own society like that. It doesn't mean we cannot transform 
though, and I certainly find hope in unexpected places. I remember reading this rather obscure book called Energy in the English Industrial Revolution um, by Tony Wrigley, a great demographer. And in it, I found a little line about how Adam Smith, the great political economist in the 18th century, didn't even think that there was an industrial revolution going on when he was right in the middle of it, or at least at the early stages of it. We couldn't see it. And I think it, this is what may be happening now, that there is, you know, you can look around the world and see big tech, big fossil fuels still in power and so on. Or you can start connecting the dots between all the experiments in regenerative agriculture, circular economy, all of the what I call time rebels who are acting for the long term, whether they are campaigning on legal movements to get rights for future generations or for rivers like they are in New Zealand, whether it's Fridays for Future or the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion, put them together. I think we've got a chance for transformation. Right, and regenerate. I, I, I do another show called Regenerate about the soil and, and making, soil, re, re, making the soil central once again, or respect for the soil in agriculture. It's an, another important theme. Well, and, and I think if, if you get the chance on that show, you should get the uh, British environmental writer, George Monbiot on, who's got a new book coming out called Regenesis. And it's all about the soil. It's all about trying to, in a way, inhabit the soil. To yeah, we feel. had Paul Hawking on and, and, and that would be good. We also had Isabella Tree, who I know blurbs your book, uh, Returning to Nature. There's certainly something going on here, Roman, right? There's a, yeah, I, this I, is I, a I big brewing movement. Do we need perhaps... A political party to incorporate this post greens something that somehow captures all these different pieces because you are a political thinker you said you as a younger man you studied political science there are a lot of pieces here that you're bringing together in economics in agriculture in the environment in politics a lot of I pieces that I, I are brewing say as the world increasingly seems as if it's broken, but this stuff needs to come together pretty fast and, and have a political wrapper, doesn't it? Well, I think if you're going to influence politics, don't try forming a political party in the first instance. I think what really changes politics is social movement action. I think that's the story of history since the French Revolution. It's about disruption from below. And then you start changing the political discourse so that not just one party, but all parties start speaking a different language. That's what happened with human rights in the 18th and 19th century. This That's what's slowly happening, too slowly now with our ecological consciousness. Mm. It's coming left, right and center. I think funneling it all into, say, a single party, it can sometimes work. You can see the green movement in Germany in the 1970s has had impact. It's coming through today. But ultimately, I think you need to think bigger than that. These questions are bigger than that. And I think it's about cracking open the social order from below. I think that's what the suffragettes did. You mentioned them earlier in the yeah. program. That's uh, what that's Gandhi what was doing. Stuart Brand so good at and Kevin Kelly. Um, and no doubt Kelly in particular would talk about Web3 as the wrapper for all this, which might be the subject of another conversation. Uh, Roman Krasnarich, really wonderfully far-ranging conversation. Um, you're the author of The Good Ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking. It's just out in paperback in the US. What's the what's the subtitle in the UK? You said it's a different subtitle. Yeah, it's called How to Think Long Term in a Short Term World. Well, same same idea. Uh, Roman, you're in a, a rainy Oxford uh, while I'm in a sunny San Francisco. In addition to the uh, Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, vision of uh, the future. Uh, what else should people be reading in these strange times? Well, I think one of them is a book that you just mentioned, which is Parakana's 
move about my wow my parag will be thrilled you put him up on the screen and in uh, fact i saw parag speak at the long now foundation um last month so these are all coming together so you like parag's work i find him an incredibly inventive thinker he's too optimistic for my liking actually though yeah, I, I thought he might be i read everything he writes connectography was a great book of his yeah Move he's an old friend of mine we've done a lot of stuff together we'll have to get him and you on the show or him you yeah, and i mean i, I think we're coming from slightly different positions politically economically and so on but it's that long-term vision which i think he has in the way he thinks i find really admirable the other book i would say i've recently read is a great memoir of the economist amartya sen called ah. home in the world which came out not too long ago. And it links to the Paragkana book because it's about how do we get on with other people who are very different from us? Um, you know, for Amartya Sen, it was a, it's a lot about Muslims and Hindus, but that's partly at the heart yeah, of Paragkana's work. Too. Yeah, that would be brilliant. And of course, uh, Roman, one of your previous books was Empathy. So you have a particular interest in 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 the science and the culture, the art of empathy. So that would that would be great. So excellent, com uh, excellent conversation, Roman. Thank you again. Don't die on us because we need you for future conversations. Keep well and congratulations on the book. We'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you.